What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Shogren here with my co-host, Emmanuel Pani. We're part of a group of specialized real estate investors you've probably never heard of. We didn't start with deep pockets or wealthy families, and we don't rely on 401ks, mutual funds, or traditional real estate investing. In fact, many of us don't even own the properties that fund our freedom. If you ask the money experts out there, they'd say what we do is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. It's happening through a new niche called short-term rentals. We are Short-Term Rental Nation, and these are our secrets. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Short-Term Rental Secrets Podcast. I am your host, Mike Shogren, here with my main man and co-host, Mr. Emmanuel Pani. What's going on, E? Good morning, my brother. How are you today? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. What's new? Dude, we got missed by a hurricane again, so that's good. I know some people where you are got scared for a second, and, and but I don't know. I don't know how to interpret it. Like, I'm always like, we're so lucky, but then I don't want to keep saying it just in case the universe hears it and then just actually sends a hurricane my way. So I'm always kind of like very quickly saying just, I'm grateful, thank you, and then just kind of letting it go. Um, but life is good, man. Like, we, we things are rolling, and, and some days I think COVID is still a thing. Some days I forget about it, and I think life is back to normal until I go to the gym and somebody yells at me for not wearing a mask. So... <laughs> It's life nice. now, but you know, how are you guys? Did you get, did you get that rain up, up in, in your area with the storm? Yeah, or? we had some pretty crazy, uh, wind. There was actually a couple of tornado warnings. Um, my parents still don't have power at their house. It's been a couple of days. So just a lot of like knockdown trees wow. and stuff like that. Just a lot of high winds. Yeah. Uh, it was crazy. I was like watching with, uh, with Kristen and Kate and we were watching the clouds. I've never seen clouds it was like watching a time lapse. Like they were going, they're moving so fast. And I guess that storm was moving at 70 miles an hour. Yeah. And like, it, it was crazy how fast the clouds were moving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what, that's what people don't understand with the hurricanes is like, that's a category one. When yeah. we get like three, fours and fives down here that the wind picks up at like 150 miles an hour. Then shit is really moving. Like houses are moving. You know what I mean? Like at that, at that speed of wind, like, you know what I mean? Like the wind doesn't care. It'll just pick yeah. up whatever it's in this way, you know? But anyways, after this little weather channel kind of, kind of session right here for all of our listeners, um, why don't you introduce our guest today? Yeah. So I'm excited for today's guest. Uh, I've been friends with, with Rory for uh, probably three or four years. Uh, we were all in a mastermind together. Rory and I were in a, an accountability pod together for couple of years and uh, he's just a real good dude real really knowledgeable uh in all different genres of real estate so i'll just i'm gonna read his bio and then kick it over to him and, and we'll get rolling here so uh rory grew grew up in charlotte north carolina he studied business at asu he spent the next years as a project manager in new home construction and then later moved into the sales side of that business uh, after a few years, he decided to leave the U.S. to fulfill a dream of world travel, which took him through five continents over a year and a half. And uh, that experience was life-changing for him. And he met his wife while traveling, and they ended up back in Charlotte. In the past few years, he's flipped uh, 21 homes, grown a real estate business, managed Airbnbs and long-term rentals. He's currently with Keller Williams. He's got a one-year-old and a four-year-old daughter that keep him very engaged. He's a voracious reader. He loves to mountain bike and he's addicted to travel. And welcome to the show. Yeah, man. I appreciate it, buddy. Uh, it's quite an intro right there. 
I mean, you it's your a, life, so it's been yeah, quite a life, man. Like you know, seriously. Yeah, it sounds yeah. busy, man. I think I need to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we ever tone it down, but no, we don't. No, yeah. we don't. That's not. So our why style. don't you, uh, why don't you kind of walk us back through? I guess how how that evolved for you. So you got into the construction side, then you got into more of the investing side and doing some flips and some buy and holds and then short-term rentals. So why don't you kind of walk us through that whole process? Yeah. So I got into building when I was really young in construction, pretty much teenage years, and then got into the management side of that after college. And that brought me into getting into my first investment deal. Um, Pretty much how it is, House hacking before house hacking was a thing back in 2006. Um, you know, renovate the home, bring the roommates over, you know, refinance it, bring them with me, buy another one, keep doing that. So I was basically uh, house hacking for about three or four years and then eventually uh, got my general contractor's license, just figured it was good to have. And then I got my real estate license in 2011. And after I, that's when I left the country, right when I got the license. Uh, which was interesting because I kept having to update my license while I was overseas and I had no idea, you know, when things were due and all this other stuff that was getting me into trouble. But when I got back uh, with my, at the time, uh, before I even got engaged to my wife, but we, we were living in China to finish things out of that world travel trip that I had and got back 2013. And I just pretty much decided that I think Airbnb started in 2010 or 11. You could probably correct me on that. Uh, I think it's 2008. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it started, I, I think it started becoming more known in 2011-ish. Uh, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with the website Couchsurfing. It was basically Airbnb, but free. Yeah. People would stay on your couch. You would host travelers. It was a very traveler network. That is actually how I met my wife. She was a host. I stayed on her couch for free in Siberia, uh, of all things. Uh, this is, I, I don't want to get on the rabbit hole of this story, but at the end of the day, she was a host by heart. Um, she wanted to do couch surfing at our house when we lived, uh, we moved back to Charlotte in 2013. I was like, ah, you know, I don't know. You know, like I was busy. I was like, you know, I just don't know if I want to have a bunch of people out on my couch, but we had a basement home and I had known about Airbnb, but I never used it when I was traveling because I was, you know, I was a broke traveler. I was just, you know, couch surfing was pretty much it. So we basically started hosting people at our house in the basement on Airbnb. And that was pretty much the start of my world into short term because no joke. We didn't, I didn't pay my mortgage technically for like three years because Airbnb was paying it. We only hosted probably six to eight months of the year. Um, It was very easy because it was a completely separate space from our living area. And we actually enjoyed it. Uh, sharing our home is a little different than obviously, you know, share, you know, hosting an entire space, but it was great. I and mean, we met really cool people. People that will share your home are different type of traveler than what you would have in a normal Airbnb scenario where people are also going to stay in a hotel. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the difference in that hotel traveler and, and you know, somebody that's going to be really cool with everything because they're uh, getting the experience of living with somebody else, not just a place to stay. So we did that for three years until we eventually moved into our next home, which we renovated and did an addition on in the whole bit. And haven't yet converted my personal primary into uh, a B&B, but we're going to do it. I'm basically building this amazing space in my backyard that's going to have all these amenities that when we travel, 
we'll be doing the entire home um, on Airbnb or VRBO or whatever uh, to basically pay for my future vacations. You know, rent your house out while you're not there. It takes a little extra work when you got kids and you got to sit your house up, sit your house up in a certain way to do that. But that got me started though. Um, I started flipping homes in 2015, got into real estate brokerage because I already had the license and just pretty much started building uh, Airbnbs from that point. Um, we jumped out of the primary home in 2016, but then started buying in other markets uh, with a friend of mine that we now own in two different states. So we got a little portfolio now. Nice. Yeah. Down. Look so at that. You're, you're purchasing the properties, right? Because we talk about like the three different models on this podcast. So you can buy property, you can master lease property, or you can co-host or partner with landlords to manage their properties. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we, because I came from the world of owning my own long-term rentals, um, it just seemed like the right thing to do was to have that control. I think it's what, that's probably it for me, Mike. Uh, it, the other two models make sense. And we actually tried that model here in Charlotte with a friend of ours that owns an apartment building. He let us sublet one of his places um, and just, you know, guaranteed the rent for X amount of dollars over what he would have gotten long-term. And we took it over. Unfortunately, not because of that business model, but because it was the wrong neighborhood. Um, I can definitely go into some really interesting Airbnb experience that we have at tenants there. It was short-lived, but we pulled the plug on that after like six weeks. Um, but everything else I own right now, um, and that's pretty much probably what we'll stick with for now in terms of ownership. Yeah. I think, I think that's a thing that happens, right? Like to me, if you are owner-operator, the only reason why you'll start managing other properties, at least I'm speaking for myself, is just for the economy of scale advantage for my own expenses, right? And to me, that's the only benefit that I've ever seen in like creating a property management company that goes along with our Airbnb business, because I'm very similar to you. I own everything that we manage, plus a couple extra ones um, that we manage. But I like that because then my handyman gets paid by other people and then works for free on my properties, right? So like, that's the only kind of hack that I've seen into doing it because if not, it can be quite, quite a headache, especially if you have no expertise, right? Like you have no, and you have a lot of like background and experience. And even with all of that, you subly something that you're like, Oh shit, this is <laughs> not the right neighborhood. But at the same time, it's amazing that like you cut it in six weeks, which is, which is the main thing that is important for people. Like it's not, wishful thinking right like right. an airbnb property either works or it doesn't and like if you're like it's like a bad relationship you know what i mean like the moment you realize you're in a bad relationship yeah you, you gotta cut it before it starts hurting you real bad you know yeah we i mean the great thing about that business model that you know mike that you're doing there i mean you can get in for very little right you don't have you know down payment closing costs and you pretty much just have probably just the cost of the staging and i don't pay for anything Okay, well, you can tell me more about that one. <laughs> but yeah. Basically, like, I think we were all in for that thing for maybe five to six K. And my wife owns a staging business. So we even had discounted stuff there. Some of the stuff we could either borrow or sell back to their company. So we were able to basically, you know, I think in all, we, we might have lost a grand on that deal um, versus, well, I wouldn't say lost because we, we still had income from the, the rentals that we did have. But we had some really bad run-ins with some really bad tenants. And it seemed to be the neighborhood, like I said, that was attracting them there because mm -hmm. it was a neighborhood that had turned in the city 
that I think still had pockets of people that knew, hey, if I can just jump in here, I can use this property for X, Y, and Z. So that's really what, what killed it. Um, but I would, I would do it again. Uh, we really had nothing to lose with the setup too, because our, our buddy that owned the, the apartment building, he, there was no lease. I mean, it was just like, hey, we're going to try this out. If we can make you money, we'll make money. Great. If not, you can go back to long-term and rent, you know, renting it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. See, I, like, I like the co-host model because when I got started, I just didn't have cash to even pay for anything. So yeah. I just partnered with landlords. If they were making two grand a month and I could make them 2,500 or three grand a month and still make myself a bunch of money, it was a win-win all the way around. So they'd invest for all the furniture and everything like that. So that's why I like that model because I was able to scale it quickly because I wasn't limited by capital. Yeah. Um, and as long as you get good results and you have good properties in good areas, it was a home run. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, when you and I were, you know, masterminding around expansion opportunities and things like that, one of the things that I was very impressed with was how, how you assessed potential opportunities and you had it like very dialed in for what criteria you were looking for in what markets. And from an economic standpoint, I felt like you really, you went a layer deeper than a lot of people do. So I don't know if we want to kind of talk about that, like your mindset around identifying uh, the right market and the right property type in certain areas for you for a short-term rental. Yeah, Mike, I'd love to speak on that, man. Uh, Some of that's changed a little bit too for me uh, over the last year from what we've seen and studied uh, for what we own and what we what we did own and what we own now and what we're looking for in the future in terms of profitability and occupancy, right? Well, not only rate and occupancy determines your profitability, but there are definitely things that affect that. So getting back to what I was saying before, if you want me to speak on that, um, to me, making sure you're in a market that has a big enough population that it's not just going to be tourism only and you get some spillover from people that are just coming to the city to visit family or friends, or uh, they're driving through, you know, on the interstate and they're just going to be over for one nighter. We do nightly. I don't do this two to three night minimum stay. I realize it's more management, um, but we don't, you know, our, our tenants, uh, guests are paid in cleaning. So we don't, we make money on the cleaning. So uh, we do everything nightly, but uh, we look at markets that are going to have a good base of, uh, People there that are going to, uh, I'll get like Charlotte, for instance, not everybody comes to Charlotte for tourism. I don't own here right now. I did post here. Um, but, you know, it, it does get some tourism. There's a lot of events and consort, concerts and uh, ball games and stuff like that. Um, but the nightly rate's a little bit lower. So you're going to get the highest nightly in, you know, tourism markets, as you know. Um, but on the shoulder seasons or the off season, aka the beach, unless you're in Florida, right? Um, you're going to have, even in, you know, Florida in the summer, right? You're, you're still going to have occupancy, but it's not going to be, um, That's high, yeah. yeah, unless you're near Disney, right? Like if you're in Orlando, it's a little different, which I've looked at that market too. Um, so we're looking at that. Uh, we look at type of property. Um, is it a studio, one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, and you know, five plus. And this is where it's changed for me. Cause we used to think, you know, one bedroom was the best because you could get a very small property, let's say like 600 square feet and be up and running at a very low cost per door. So I look at it like multifamilies at a cost per door on an Airbnb turnkey basis. Mm-hmm. So uh, as, as an example, like in Savannah, for the most part, cost per door down there is about three to 350 a door. 
Charleston, you're looking at like four to $500,000 a door. And that could be anywhere from a one or a two bedroom property. So okay. we were looking at multifamilies too, instead of single family, because it's, you know, there's, you're spreading your overhead. We've got a five unit in Savannah that, you know, we have, we pay for one internet service and we can just boost it across the whole property, just like a hotel would, right? So there's economies of scale there on the type of properties. But what we realize is uh, just because your cost per door is lower, let's say on a one bedroom, if that market is willing to pay more for that two bedroom to spread their cost or even a three, then you got to incrementally look at that cost per door and say, okay, what's the percentage of difference if I'm going to go from, let's say, $300,000 to three seventy-five for that two-bedroom, what's it going to offset in rent and profitability that I'm going to get? Or occupancy, because we realize in Savannah, uh, unlike Charleston, uh, Savannah, much more demand for two-bedrooms for some reason. And I think a lot of it, you have to look at your demographic of your traveler. Um, so that we, we went down the rabbit hole on this because we really want to build a database of repeat travelers. So we want to know where they're coming from. And this is kind of going off on a tangent too, but we analyzed, you know, um, we went back on every single guest that stayed with us over, let's say two or three years. And we said, okay, did they come from, you know, Charlotte, Atlanta, New York, Miami. And we just figured out where those top five markets are. And then all the other ones were just basically outliers. It's like, you know, coming from Wichita, Kansas. Well, that's probably a one-off, but once you know, where they're coming from and who that demographic and their age group and everything else. I mean, you could, if you build that site, which we're working on right now, do targeted marketing to those markets through Facebook ads or anything else, Instagram, um, you can build it up on your website so that um, you're, you're linking keywords to those markets. Um, and then that applies for Airbnb too, right? You can put a lot of keywords into your listing that may appeal to where your traffic's coming from. So, um, Savannah luckily like pulls Savannah and Charleston actually pull quite a lot all over, um, just like some markets. But as you know, there's other markets that are very regional only, like for instance, the Southeast or even in that state and doesn't make them a bad investment. It just means you really just need to know where those people are coming from, uh, and why they're booking with you. Like what's the draw? Yeah. So, so we really yeah. air DNA to kind of get, get, get this data or 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 is this just past experience of just you knowing where your guest comes from and, and just having a good like crm system or or how does that work for you yeah so when we're, we're trying to acquire um, we're looking at cost per door size and type of property and all the other uh things that make that property desirable in terms of the location not just like location within the city or what what's close by walkability wise right but um, when you're trying to figure out which markets to go into. So I'm looking at it just like a multifamily investor. Um, but to answer your question, we do use AirDNA, not the free version. And we'll, we'll use the free version just to like broadly look at different markets. But when we finally say, okay, we're gonna invest here. We'll get, we'll get the zip codes you know, on AirDNA, which are a little bit cheaper than that. You know, you know AirDNA was like super cheap three years ago. And now they got, you know, I guess so much traction with it that it got expensive. But we do do that and then there's nothing better than the real world data. So we'll go through and we'll actually study our competition on Airbnb and VRBO and others that look at, uh, you know, the, we call them the operators, right? If you look at, you know, 100 Airbnbs, there might only be 10 or 15 actual operators there that are owning, they're either playing the game at the highest level on one unit or they may own multiple. 
Um, but if they don't have at least 10 or 15 reviews on that listing, it's probably irrelevant what their calendar says because they're, they're not reflecting our competition. They're not reflecting the mom and pops. Um, so we want to know how many mom and pops there are. Uh, a great example is the Outer Banks. If you go on the Outer Banks in Airbnb right now, it's crazy. I think there's like two operators there. Um, but that was a market we looked at. It was like, you know, cool, it's a beach market, blah, blah, blah. But then you realize it's, it's got a heavy off season, uh, which is really hard to get a draw. Cleaners are probably going to be a challenge. HVAC repair van are going to be a challenge out there. Like all that, those things detract from it. But somebody could go in there and probably crush it. Um, if they don't mind just taking six or nine months of income for the year, because it, almost nobody's an operator out there. So we look at that. Uh, we look at, um, uh, you know, when, when we go on AirDNA, we really want to look at what's the true occupancy percentage and that nightly rate. But we, you know, as you go on there, it's like, okay, is that the average or the median number? And then how do you, how do you compare yourself as an operator? Are you outperforming all your competition? So like we're, we're at, uh, out of, out of our, all of our listings right now, I got seven listings. Um, we're at a 93% occupancy. It's pretty good. Um, it's definitely in the top five or 10% in our markets. And we try to be, or are in the top 10 listings within our city. And we know because you know how it is. If you go on an unknown website from somebody else's, maybe phone, so they're not pinging you and you, type in that city, are you in that first page on Airbnb? Is your listing showing up? Mm -hmm. I mean, in my opinion, that's, that's really good unbiased way to really see where you're ranking against your peers. Same with the reviews, right? I mean, if you've got 20 plus reviews, I feel like once you get to 20 reviews, you're kind of getting established in there a little bit. Uh, obviously 50 to 100 is better, but how do you rank against uh, your review ranking to the others? And the reason I'm bringing all that up is because when we look at AirDNA data, you got to look at um, based on the competition and based on what you can provide as a host, knowing that if, hey, if I'm going to be at, I should be able to hit at least 85 to 90% occupancy in that market. And this is what our nightly rate should be versus what AirDNA says. That can help you make a smart decision about jumping in instead of just blindly looking at AirDNA like, oh man, they're getting... 400 a night, let me, let me jump in there. And then you realize like it, should, it could say like 61% occupancy. And maybe that makes your numbers work depending on what kind of deal you're looking at, um, depending on your business model, right? Like it's, I have to, here's the reason too, I have to do this. When I buy them, you gotta be really smart. You can't screw up, right? Um, the last one, we, I mean, we bought a million dollar property last year. It's like, that's a heavy, you know, uh, that's a heavy payment that we just locked ourselves into. Um, but I will tell everybody on this podcast, like if you're going to buy, make sure that property stands on its own as a long-term. Mm. So if you got it. I love that. Well, you have to, it's, it's yeah. a must because if any mm. regulation changes or something crazy yes. happens, if you cannot put it on a 12 month lease in cash flow, you're right. screwed. It, it doesn't have to be a heavy cash flow, right. but you can't be, you can't be in a negative situation. I mean, your, your overhead goes way down when you, when you convert to long-term, right? I mean, you're, you're not having to pay for half the things, but what does that one or two or three bedroom go for in your market? You know, go on Rent-O-Meter, go on Zillow, look at what the rents are and make sure that you're not going to stick yourself. Now, it's very hard to do that in a beach market when like literally we were going to buy down in Tybee uh, near Savannah. There's no long-term rentals there. We have no clue what it would rent for. Um, we have an idea. We can guess, 
you know, what somebody might pay for. But, but then you got to go down the rabbit hole even further and said, well, where are those jobs coming from? Who are, who are the people that are going to live at a beach and rent 12 months of the year? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be the waiters and waitresses and what can they afford? Yeah. And that's really going down the rabbit hole of like insulating yourself on the risk of having a mortgage payment and doing all these things. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this is where your years of experience are kind of showing, right? Because it's just such a like m- macroeconomic look at what a property is right and understanding and like that's that's the thing right like if you are going to do this seriously and you are going to do this as a job you have to you have to have everything being kind of considered in your equation one and two if you especially what you said if you're going to buy them then it's a whole different story right because you can't just buy them because you love the area because sometimes that works you know i mean like mike when he bought his first place he loves going there so that works, but that was all factor in the, in the equation as well, you know? Yeah. And that, yeah, there's, yeah, there's so many levels of this that we could speak on. That's one of the, that's one of my new criteria now is like, would I want to go there to visit and would I want to stay in that property? Would I choose that property? And sometimes the answer is no, but if it's a multifamily, other people will. So that's probably not the best one to use, but getting back to the, uh, you know, just the analyzation of all those markets, it's, it's, it's super important to, to really think about all this stuff. Even if you're going to, you know, ha- you know, I don't, what, what's the coin mic that you use when you're basically hacking with a, you know, you're subletting basically with that model. The master leasing one. Master leasing. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, it's the same kind of thing that if you're going to lock into um, a 12 month lease, I mean, one of, one of the folks in my mastermind group too, that I had, he was going to jump in with that. And he was getting ready to sign on a 12 month lease on a beach property actually it was in Florida and he wasn't sure on his numbers. Um, he was like, well, gosh, what if I don't get my, my profitability up on the, you know, the income that's needed to make this payment. Um, that's where, you know, it can, it can make sense to look at that long-term rent too, because if he just subletted it on a 12 month lease, um, unless he's going to be heavily burdened by breaking that, I mean, you're going to end up with a furnished rental. And there's options there that we can talk about too. Uh, furnishfinder.com, um, you, know, you know, working with the, uh, the traveling nurses throughout the nation. There's a lot of, um, you know, interim month to month type situation. Backup plan. Yeah. Because you're yeah. not going to cash flow nearly as much. Right. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good, it's like, where's that in between going to be between nightly and six or 12 month leasing that could still um, be good for your property. And sometimes it can make sense that, Hey, you know what? Like if you're in a beach market that has a really bad off season, maybe look to do that for the three months of the year that you're going to be weathering that storm. You might not make as much obviously, but you're probably going to make more than if you're just sitting out there nightly and it dries up. And I think Um, it's it's what Mike and I always talk about, right? And every guest is kind of brought it on in its own ways. It's like in this market, he or she who is most flexible wins, right? And that's the same thing. If you're super stuck that you're like, I'm never going to do one night rentals. Then you might lose out on a bunch of money. Right. So like wow. understanding and like yeah. kind of testing the whole thing and understanding, like as long as you create a system and infrastructure, like it's not like you Rory, they have to go and clean. You're making right. a profit every time the, the person goes there and clean. So what's yeah. the harm, right? As long as your systems are good and dialed in, that's right. You can handle the management. <clears throat> yeah. The, that, that's a really funny thing. You brought that up because 
I see so many operators, um, including established folks, they may have like a hundred reviews on that one listing that won't do, um, they'll do like a minimum two or three nights stay. But it depends on where you are, right? If you're like up in a mountain property, I get it. Like if you rent out Friday night, you're probably not going to get that Saturday or vice versa. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a city, especially if it's a tourist town with a city, we get a ton of nightly people. And that's where you really, that's where you can say, okay, if you don't know, just run your numbers. Look at all your past stuff and say, how many, how many one-nighters did I get? How many of those were Friday and Saturday night or a Monday night versus how many two and three night bookings do I get? And look at that percentage. The only time it makes sense in my mind to do a minimum is if it's like a, a very touristy beach market, like uh, stuff that gets booked for a week. You know, if, if somebody needs a week vacation and you know, all these families are coming down for a minimum seven and you're nightly and that person just booked a Saturday night or a, a Wednesday night, nobody's going to stay with you for three days, move out and come back. So you mm -hmm. probably are shooting yourself in the foot in some of those markets, mm -hmm. but we're not in those markets right now. So I don't, I haven't really gone down that path where it's made sense to change that, but we know we're head and shoulders over a lot of our competition on some of these properties because our competition has that minimum. Um, and there's other things that they may do, you know, obviously you can look at your, your cancellation policy or um, your cleaning fees and all these other things that your, your competition in that market, like what do they offer? Like, here's a, here's an interesting thing. Um, we figured out if you add a hot tub uh, in the mountains, like I'm going to use North Carolina as an example because those are the ones I actually studied. It may, not be, it may be different out west in Colorado or something. But we realized like if you add a hot tub, it's going to cost you, let's say, two to five grand. Let's just say it's 3,500 bucks turnkey. And you put that on your property, you're going to be one of only 10 or 15% of homes within that market that has the hot tub. And if you do, this is, I, I actually studied all the ones that had the hot tub and how often they got booked and what their nightly rate was. And I knew that within basically, I think it was a three to four month payback, we would have revenue that would pay for that hot tub within three or four months. It was mm -hmm. a no brainer. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, I went, I went to North Carolina uh, to ski back in February when we could still travel. And You're skiing uh, here? I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did the same thing, right? Like our thing was we're going in the winter one of the requirements from like my, my group, everybody was like, we want a hot tub. Yeah. So we're literally like, if that wasn't there, we just didn't do it. But I, I love man, like, and, and literally hats off to you because like, um, it's amazing the amount of research that you have done in really like understanding your, your market. And it reminds me of, of, we went to one of the masterminds, I think it was like up in Montreal and there was this, um, multifamily investors and he blew my mind because he was like I know by the mile from my place how much the rent kind of changes right like I know if I go two miles this way or three miles this way or five miles this way I know how much I can get and like this is like the little things that really kind of make a difference in understanding hey this is working this is not working and and why right yeah, it sounds like a lot of work, but and it might take you, you know, it doesn't take more than a couple of days, right? Like you're on there for a few hours and you, you, I put it all in a spreadsheet and I rank markets like that. I know every single market pretty much in the Southeast. I mean, I've analyzed it all because I, was, I don't want to drive more than six hours to something that I operate in yet. 
we are just now testing out now that we've handed everything over finally <laughs> to somebody that's, uh, we've got systems, but now we have a full-time, you know, person that's on payroll basically. That's yeah. management stuff. Not payroll, but you know, it's a gross rev situation. Yeah. But what is at the end of the day, now? yeah. Can you touch on that also? What's that? What, what, what does your team look like? So it's, it's you and your wife. I assume you guys are busy. Actually, she, she wants nothing to do with it anymore. Oh uh, my God. <laughs> she's running her own, she, not in a bad way. She just, she runs her own world. She, she liked the hosting part of what we did where she got to meet the traveler and yeah. provide for them. That, that's the part that she liked. She did not like the management part at all. Yeah. Um, so when we started buying in other markets and, and operating entire places, she got out of it and did her own thing, which is fine. I mean, um, she helps me with the design though. So when we acquire, um, like that's one thing that we are super unique in our space. And that again, like we can, that's a whole nother rabbit hole conversation that we can talk about. But if you spend that extra, it's not a, like we turn that one that we did the master leasing on too quickly, very bland, very quick. And because of, I think our, our profitability also was affected. I know that it really attracted a different tenant, but maybe it did. So the ones that we just finished up renovating, we spent a lot of time, you know, accent walls, uh, details, you know, all these different unique furniture pieces. I mean, we went to, we drove just to find certain pieces of furniture to put into that place. Um, but at the end of the day, like that, that goes a long, long way. If you can make your place super unique, people are like, oh my God, I just scrolled through 15 or 20 listings. This one's amazing. I want to, it just, it just looks so cool. I want to stay there. And then people don't even care about your location half the time. They just want the experience. And that's what it's about. Um, what were you wanting to ask me? I, <laughs> I kind of, no, I, I kind of asked about your team because you were oh, yeah. bringing it up. Um, yeah. yeah. So the way it, when we started buying, it was basically me and a partner. Um, his wife works with my wife on a staging business. So when we acquired, they were helping us with design and the staging piece and furnishing everything. And, and then once we got it rolling, that was basically just me and him managing it. So we have, we have a ton of systems, a ton of apps that we use. And like, we, we definitely took that to another level that most people probably, you guys probably do it, but I would say everybody I've talked to probably doesn't have as many systems in place as we do. Um, so we have a lot of visibility and we have to, because none of it's local for us. We don't want to hop in the car and we don't, we don't ever have to hop in the car to go do anything. Um, but at the end of the day, I've got a real estate assistant I hired about six months ago. She's helping me with not just the short term rentals, but also, uh, just everything I'm involved with my flips and real estate brokerage and multifamily apartments and all the other stuff that I got going on and personal stuff, just cause I, I can't handle it anymore. Uh, so that's been great. Uh, so she's kind of part-time with it. And then we recently literally just handed the keys over uh, a week ago to uh, another operator who was in the bulk of the city that we're in. He's got, I think, 14. We gave him eight. So he's going to be, we have like a really interesting tiered structure though. So it's not, um, it's not like some of these uh, turnkey management companies that take, let's say 18 to 20%. We have him set up based on performance uh, for occupancy, for reviews, for speed of getting back with people if he drops the ball on something or if there's like a major hiccup. So there's a bonus structure tied to it. 
my partner put it together. Like it's, if you think my demographics are, are involved, like you should see this spreadsheet that he created that, that it assumes this payout, but it's a very good payout structure that incentivizes him. Cause we just gave him like really high rev properties and he's got a bunch of them. Right. So he's, he's going to make a good uh, thing and he's got that we gave him the systems. So he's going to have a whole lot less time in it than your average manager probably would. That's going to be, you know, sitting there, you know, doing stuff on the Airbnb app or something like that. So yeah. uh, it works out for us from a profitability perspective, but also offloads all that time. Um, but like I said, he's, he's fresh out of the gate. We can only see his past performance and we're, but we've committed. If he fails, we'll give him two to four weeks. If he fails at it, you know, um, I don't think he's watching your podcast, Mike. I think I can speak freely. Uh, <laughs> we'll hire somebody else, right? Because uh, we, we don't want to be, it's just like anything else. If you own multifamily apartments, for instance, do you want to be a landlord and get a call every time there's, you know, uh, a toilet issue? Or do you want to be an investor and go acquire more and grow your portfolio? Because yeah. you will get burned out. You'll get burned out in this business. I don't care what business you're in. You have to work on the business, not in the business. You got to be an operator. So uh, that's been heavily focused for us, but we knew we had to bring our properties to where they had insulation from the market. So what that meant for us was we, we you know, every property needed a minimum 25 reviews close to a five star. That way we felt comfortable saying, okay, if this guy flops and ends up with like a few one stars, it's not going to kill us that we can't recover yep. from. Um, and that's what we're with it. Yeah. So for you guys now, this is good because we haven't really talked about this and this is basically my model is partnering with landlords and running the property for them, right? So understanding, like if you are a, a co-host, whatever you want to call yourself, professional short-term rental host, looking to partner with landlords, I always like to say that there's, there's a few different types of investors or property owners. You've got your vacation homeowners, You've got your do-it-yourselfer landlords that like to get their hands dirty and they like to keep control. And then you've got your entrepreneurs slash investors that have cash flowing businesses already and they're just taking profits, putting it into real estate to grow their wealth. Yeah. That's who I personally like to work with because they want to be hands off. They trust the model. They like seeing their check. They're not emotionally attached to the property. If I tell them, hey, we need to do this, this, and this type of upgrade, they're like, okay, fine, I understand. And as long as we perform, and we set clear expectations like you're doing with this gentleman, like it's a win-win all the way around. But yeah. having clear expectations is huge. Like you have to lay that out. It yeah. Is, yeah. And, and we're mono. I mean, we're, we're tagged on every communication. Like well, as we're on this podcast, I mean, I can see stuff flipping through that I'm like, okay, this one just came through. How long is it going to take to him to get to it? You know, yeah. So we're going to keep him on, you know, parole for a while until I, until I know like I can release the reins. Yeah. Um, yep. But we're, so are we're, those systems the the system that you gave him right? Are those like readily available kind of commercial systems, or is this things that you guys have kind of made yourself? Like, do you use no, it, like smart BNBs and the yeah? So I'll, yeah, I'll speak to that, um, and I'll just I'll just name them. Um, yeah, basically we use IGMS right now. It's not as good as some of the other ones, but it's the cheapest. Um, so now we use IGMS for. Pretty much all of our communications. It's got you know the cleaning tabs in there. We don't have to call a cleaner. We see when they show up. Um, it syncs with Remote Lock. Are you guys using Remote Lock? Uh, it's basically I use I mean, links, but it's similar. Okay, yeah. I mean, basically, we have all the you know 
heat entry doors, but they're nice because the batteries don't wear out like some of the other ones. Like, um, I would say they're 99% good. Like we, we very rarely ever have issues and I'm, I'm really big into backup plans for backup plans. So we have, you know, a backup keypad that's got a spare key in it. If that remote lock fails, then we have a spare key for the spare key that's hidden on the property. So it's like, okay, somebody's drunk. They came home, forgot the code or screwed something up or the lock's not working. Then they lose the spare key. I still don't have to drive, you know, at two in the morning. Somebody. Yeah. So you got you to gotta really go down the rabbit hole on all that. And you should apply that to your whole property. Um, not to go off on a tangent, but we can talk more about that too. Um, but you really got to have all those things in place when you operate remotely. And I think that's actually an advantage too, because if you're local, you probably won't put those things in place and you'll, you'll be more apt to get in your car a bunch. You know, I tell people that all the time. I'm yeah. like, you're spoiled when you're local. That's right. But when you're out of state, it forces you to dial in your systems because you have yeah. no other pl- You have no plan B. Yeah. You got to mastermind your property. Um, but to talk more about the system, so we got remote lock, IGMS, um, we're using Ring, so we've got cameras front and back, which I cannot tell you what a great investment that is. Um, because we've had people, you know, if we, we have some properties that we have pet policy on, um, we charge a pet fee, but we have other ones that we don't. And guess what? Some people still bring, you know, their animal. Um, if we ever have an issue with damage or, you know, bugs or anything else that like was caused by that pet, I mean, we've got it all. We can just send that, that to Airbnb and there you go. There's your proof. Like this person obviously violated our property. Same with guests showing up. So to have that visibility and then give that manager that same visibility means they don't need to get in the car either, even if they are local. We can see if somebody screwed up, you know, parking. We can see everything. Um, we have uh, Echo B, which is like Nest for thermostats. So we, we, like we had this, we just did this about a month ago because we had an AC issue. One of our guests set it for like 62 degrees, froze up the system, which caused a snowballing review for the next guest that checked in and the AC didn't work because it was froze up. We had to blame it on the other guest. So we put smart thermostats in to basically do like a 69 degree minimum, but we have visibility anywhere in the world of exactly what temperature our places are. Um, and we can set it and control it and give that to the manager. Uh, we have, um, there's one more I'm trying to think of it, but basically, I mean, it's, it's just to the level of, um, anything that they can touch or control, we want to be able to see control and have that visibility as well. So like, I, I don't have noise aware on my phone. My partner does, thank God. Cause he's the, he's the night owl anyway. I mean, I'm going to ask you if you have noise. Have, yeah. I, well, we haven't had success with it though. It, it's really finicky. We did a test. We, so here's one thing that I'd recommend everybody listening to this. If you own property, stay in your property, stay in it yes. as a guest, uh, before you launch it to the world, have a friend stay in it. If you have time, have them get a third party perspective because they're going to see stuff you don't, but then stay in it at least once a quarter because there's stuff that's broken that you're not hearing about and it's affecting people's experiences while they're there. And you would never know it if they don't leave you that review feedback. So we make it a point to visit at least a quarter and stay in the different units uh, as we go. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for noise aware, like we tested it out. We, we have a, like a duplex where we have units that are stacked. So noise is going to be an issue if you got upstairs guests being loud. So we would actually like one person would scream and the other person would be downstairs and see what the rating is, or they'd just be talking really loud and see, okay, if it's this decibel, 
we know this is actually a party versus people are just talking loud. So you don't have like a false alarm. So you really got to yeah. know your stuff too, like um, to learn it, I guess, and figure out, you know, the idiosyncrasies of like how it's performing and when things. I are always recommend loud. people just crank a TV super loud because yeah. I don't think it kicks in until like 10, like it has to be consistent for 10 minutes. So it minimizes right. false alarms. So I just crank a TV <laughs> until I hit a certain level and then I set it for that level. So mine was my four-year-old's temper tantrum. Nice. Because they came in town with us when we were renovating and my, my partner was downstairs. He's like, well, uh, I know based on that temper tantrum that, uh, you know, this is definitely going to be excessive noise because it went on for at least 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> so that was a good test there. But, uh, you know, I think we have one other um, thing that we use. I can't think of the name right offhand. And then, of course, we have for internet and cable and stuff, we use boosters. So we have all that stuff tied in there with Rang and other things that um, – make things a little bit more fail-proof or foolproof um, and other things that we do. Uh, like, like you don't want to have like a super difficult remote, right? Like if you have um, smart TV, we have smart TV. You just, anything that's going to, you know, warrant a phone call from the 75-year-old in your property. And, uh, you know, you, it's making their experience worse. It's increasing your communication all the time. Like just stuff like that. Yeah. You know, every time we have a um, negative comment or just a comment that we can improve upon, I make a list. I have a constant list. It just grows. And then we eventually will handle that so that hopefully that property becomes stabilized. So the ones we've owned for three or four years now, we almost never have any issues because we know we've solved almost every single problem we have control over. The only thing we can't control is the neighborhood to a degree. So, yeah, um, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time here. I know we're getting close to the top oh, yeah. of the hour, but wow. um, the last question that we ask all of our guests is what is your number one secret for success in short-term rentals? I think buying them smart. Again, it kind of goes back to that cost per door and really knowing um, I look for, I don't know about you guys, I'm at a 24% return minimum. So if I can't achieve 24%, on that property, owning it all in um, after stabilization, it's don't waste your time with it because you can achieve that in this business, even though I know that sounds like maybe it's high, maybe, maybe it's not high for some people, but if you're at a minimum 24, that's a threshold. And if you screw up and you've acquired it and you do 15 or 20, at least you're still making some good money. So if you have that, it gives you a good buffer, but you really got to know what, what computes to those numbers, right? So yeah. that's how I apply everything. I'm saying, okay, cost per door is this. This is what I know this one or two bedroom place would achieve on uh, total total revenue, you know, for occupancy and expected nightly rate. And this is going to be my cash on cash return. Again, this kind of goes back to just being an investor period, whether it's multifamily or anything for that matter. You got to know your, your your numbers. But if you know your numbers, it takes the risk out of these because they're going to be a lot of work. Um, it's not an easy business, but once you get things stabilized and systematized, it should operate pretty smooth. Um, but you got to get that work up front. And then once you get it, you got to make sure it's good out the gate, as you know. Um, but after that time period, you can really um, rock and roll and you just buy more, you know. That's it. Um, I love it. Well, where, yeah. can the, uh, where can the listeners learn more about you and, and see your properties and things like that? I don't know. I don't think you guys built the website yet, but I don't know uh, what's the best way for somebody. To Actually, we did. I, yeah, I could have 
kind of on a tangent on this too. I mean, we really want to get, uh, we want to be able to have visibility offline from Airbnb as well. Um, so our website uh, right now is coolbnbs.com. Um, it's a great uh, URL. Yeah, yeah, we actually we we actually took that one and we got um, there was another one I'm trying to think. Uh, fun funbnbs.com too. I think we got. Um, nice. They're all linked to the same, I believe. But um, but yeah, that, uh, we're we're on there. Um, we uh, you know I've got um, I don't know giving out an email in here. Does anybody do that? That's more? totally up to you. Whatever you, <laughs> whatever you want. Whatever you want to do. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it's rc6260 at gmail. Um, if anybody wants to reach out there. And uh, I'm at Keller Williams South Park here in Charlotte. Um, if anybody's local, uh, network through there as well. Um, yeah, I'm glad to help anybody that's uh, either existing in this biz or getting started or anything else. I'm, I have a lot of investor clients too I'm trying to bring into this game. Um, because it's very hard to get a good cash on cash return on multifamily right now, uh, especially if you're playing on the smaller numbers of single family and duplexes and stuff. So it's definitely a viable option. But I tell people that you know you got to get your business hat on because it's a little, it's a different. You're you're basically operating as a hospitality business instead of a landlord business. Mm-hmm. You yep. have to change that mindset to have success. So that's probably the other secret, <laughs> right? Yeah, be hospitable. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. You can't, you you gotta, you gotta put your hospitality hat on and put everything in the eyes of your guest, and you'll you'll do way better. Reviews, you live and die by your reviews, right? So, love it, Rory Cummins. Thanks for being on the show, man. It's always great catching up with you. I love your your detailed analytical mind and the way that you assess properties and and markets. I always learn something new when we hang out. So, thank you again for being on the show, man. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Good seeing you, both. Absolutely, man. Good stuff. All right. All right, folks. Take care. See you. Bye. Hey, STR Nation, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. And in the comments, let us know what topics you want us to cover on upcoming episodes, and we'll make sure to get that in the books for you. And if you really want to learn how to launch, automate, and scale your short-term rental business, if you want to go deeper, then check out our free masterclass at strsecrets.com.